You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Now we are reaching a more dramatic part of Nehemiah. It's chapter 6. Here's what we've learned so far. For 141 years, God's people were vulnerable. They were endangered, unsafe, unprotected. They were supposed to be living in the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by walls. But 141 years ago, the walls were torn down, the gates were burned, and God's people were scattered. Their version of the church, the temple, was closed. And then God appoints this man, Nehemiah, to change the fate of human history and safety for God's people. At this point in the story, they are nearing the end. The wall is basically rebuilt. And now they need to hang the doors and hang the gates. And so God's people can move into the city and they can be safe and secure. And then as a family, they can practice their faith in freedom. And everything is riding on this. So as God's people are approaching the conclusion, their enemies are trying to stop them from completing the task. The big idea is this, if you're trying to do something for God, someone's going to try to stop you. If God is going to send you, someone is going to oppose you. But if it's of the Lord, he is not going to let them win. Nehemiah said to God's people, to the Israelites, when they were facing opposition earlier, he said this, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You see, the critics that Nehemiah encountered in chapter 1 are there to this very day, and they're trying to stop the work of God. And they're going to attack him and oppose him and slander him. This is the price of leadership. He ultimately needs to decide, number one, I'm going to hear from God, and that's all who I'm going to listen to. Number two, I'm not going to allow fear to dwell in my heart. And number three, I'm not going to get distracted or diverted from the thing that God has called me to do. And so this is one of the more important moments in human history because it will send reverberations through the centuries to the coming of Jesus. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Well, in this story, Nehemiah's critics and enemies... They're evil. He is godly. He's not perfect, but he seeks to follow the Lord. This is how the story unfolds in Nehemiah 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, so Sanballat and Tobiah, we've seen them since chapter 1. These are our enemies. When it When word came to them that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that point I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. (laughs) If a town is called Ono, you probably should not go. 
But, and Nehemiah knows, they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. You notice Nehemiah doesn't himself go. He sends messengers. Here's the message. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. It seems that there are three kinds of people. There are wise people, foolish people, and evil people. These enemies and critics, they're evil. Everything they say and do is against what God wants. And they will use any information, any opportunity, and they will weaponize it. If someone has decided that you are the enemy, anything you give them will be used against you. If you have a conversation with them, it will be twisted to attack you. If you give them access, they will then use it to get closer to you to betray you. If you give them time or energy or trust or money, they will weaponize it to attack and harm you. That's evil. Now, Nehemiah is at the other end of the spectrum. He is wise. He's godly. He knows that these are evil people. And then in the middle, between these two extremes, if you will, is the majority of the people most of the time. They're not wise and godly, but they're not necessarily unwise and evil. They're just foolish. They're gullible. And the hope and goal of the evil people is to confuse the people in the middle who are naive and a bit foolish so that they can distrust their leaders and abandon their mission. So in this case, the evil people are like, hey, we've been attacking you this whole time that you've been here. Now we're losing the fight and you're concluding your work. So now what we want to do, we want to distract you and divert you and discourage you and seek to destroy you. So we're going to publicly throw out a meeting invite, pretending that we want to reconcile or be friends. Some of you are nice and sweet and kind, and some people are going to take advantage of you. And they're going to push once. And if they don't get what they want, they're going to push again. And they're going to keep pushing until you either give up or give in. Four times they push Nehemiah. Let's meet. Let's talk. Let's hug it out. Let's get together. In addition, these enemies of his, they're unrepentant, which means that they are unsafe. They have never apologized or owned up to anything that they have said or done. If they would have started with, hey, sorry about threatening your life. Sorry about hiring that PR firm to attack you. If they would have owned up to anything, there might have been an opportunity to have them have a relational meeting again. But they're unrepentant. They don't own up. And as a result, they're unsafe. Sometimes the best thing you can do is, is nothing. Sometimes the best thing you can give is nothing. Sometimes the best thing you can say is nothing. 
Now, how many of you, you have someone in your life, they want your time, they want your attention, they want your enemy, that your energy, sorry, and maybe a lot of that motivation is just simply they want high control over you. And so they've publicly gotten other people involved and they keep pushing you and they keep pressuring you. And you think, well, maybe if I just meet with them, that, that'll resolve it. No, it won't. This is like war. And in war, if you take a step backwards, that doesn't keep the enemy from approaching. It emboldens, it emboldens him, the enemy, to come after you even stronger. So Nehemiah needs to hold the line. The answer is no. But the enemies aren't done. Next verse. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand, so this time is, you know, kind of up the ante a little bit. In his hand was an unsealed letter. That means it's public. In which was written, it is reported among the nations. So it's been reported. We have an anonymous source. We have this unnamed, you know, uh, insider, you know, a liar. It's been reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. So in verse 1, we already learned that Geshem is one of the named enemies. So according to another enemy, Sanballat, we are supposed to trust this enemy, Geshem. Okay, it's been reported that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. You're building the wall so that you can have an insurrection and overthrow the government. Moreover... According to these reports, next verse, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. You're going to overthrow the government. This is a coup attempt. I mean, we've got documents. We're very official. We don't know who wrote them, but trust us. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. He says, you're nuttier than a Snickers bar. It's in Hebrew. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. So the public letter. This is from a political leader to the king, and it's basically this. We think Nehemiah is guilty of treason. He's a traitor, and we can't let him and the Jewish people finish building the wall. If they finish building the wall, then they'll fortify the city, and they have false prophets who will proclaim his as, him as king. This is a national crisis. And the point of this public letter was simply this, to put Nehemiah's life in danger. Let me just unpack this, what's going on. First, enemies only escalate. You can't negotiate with evil. Evil never stops itself, so it must be stopped. In addition, evil is unreasonable. Early in the book, they began by seeking to disgrace him. They're mocking Nehemiah. They're making fun of him. And we just read, then they're trying to divert him. 
Well, why don't you just leave the project and come and meet with us at a place of our own choosing? You know, trust us. It'll be safe. No, it won't. It was a murder plot. You want me to leave my people? You want me to leave the task that God has called me before it's finished? Come meet with you so you can murder me? So they're moving from disgrace to diversion to destruction. They want to destroy. In addition, Satan is the father of lies. This is all a lie. Does Nehemiah want to overthrow the government? No. If you remember in chapter 1, he closes that chapter with, I was cupbearer to the king. That means he had a secure government position, which was one of the most trustworthy people in the entire Persian empire. He had access to protect the king. The king is the one who sent Nehemiah with his permission, with his blessing to go do the work in your home country, in your city of Jerusalem. Go open the city. Go be the governor of Judah. He's not against the king. He's actually completely trusted by the the king. This is a utter, complete lie from the enemies. But what we see over and over again is that they can't disqualify you because of character and divert you from your mission. They're going to try to destroy you with a lie. I'll give you another Old Testament example and then a New Testament example. In the book of Genesis, there is a guy named Joseph. Long story short, he's in the middle of his story, he's accused of rape. He's convicted. He goes to jail. And what is it that Joseph has done to Potiphar's wife to deserve this punishment? He did nothing. It was all a lie. I'll give you a New Testament example. Jesus comes along. They claim he is demonic. He's evil. He's a liar. He's a false prophet. Actually, he's here to save us series of massive lies. But here's what happens. Evil people tell lies about godly, wise people, and then foolish people in the middle have to determine, they have to decide, who are we going to trust? I don't know. You know, a lot of people, uh, well, here's what I heard. Well, let me ask you, what are some lies being told about faith today? The Bible's made up. Jesus was not a real person. Even if he was, his death didn't mean anything. In addition, guilty people accuse innocent people of their wrongdoing. What these enemies of of, of Nehemiah are saying is, you have a false prophet who is going to falsely prophesy that you are coming to be king. Does he? Nehemiah doesn't have a false prophet. You're going to see in a moment, they do. They hire. His enemies are going to hire a false prophet and then a team of false prophets that includes a female false prophet. So we're going to do male and female. Let's cover our diversity bases. And they're all going to falsely prophesy. In addition, they have fake news. You thought that was a new phenomenon. 
the fake news is the open letter. And it says, well, we have Geshem. We have one guy on record and, you know, a bunch of anonymous sources. And we heard, it's like, Bob, I'm standing here at the White House of Persia. And we've got a guy, his face is blurred out because, well, just trust us. He's, he's legitimate. And it's a real problem. Because what happens if the Persian king thinks it's a coup attempt? I'll tell you what happens. Nehemiah and his head no longer do life together. Some of you will get that in a moment. And this king Artaxerxes, according to history outside of the Bible, he was not a man you messed with. His brother was supposed to be king, but he wanted to be king, so he murders his brother so he can be king. Another brother tried to defeat him to become king, but he has this massive army, so he brutalized his brother. Twice during his reign, coup attempts came against him. Again, this massive army, massive bloodshed, he would slaughter his enemies. So Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, ruled a bloody throne with an iron fist. If he believes that Nehemiah is now an enemy, this is a real problem. And so Nehemiah and God's people are in grave danger. So what should Nehemiah do? Up to this point, he has not responded to all of their attacks and false accusations. Here he finally responds. Look, if someone is attacking you, criticizing you, an enemy of you, and you try and answer every question, every objection, every criticism, guess what? You're going to lose the rest of your life. They seemingly have nothing else to do, so they're going to attack you to exhaust you. So what should you do the majority of the time? Ignore them and keep doing what God has called you to do. But occasionally there is something said that's so outlandish that it needs to be corrected. Now, Nehemiah's response is short and to the point. He doesn't want to give them any more ammunition, so he's the one who's like, wait a minute. I'm not a traitor. I'm not a terrorist plotting treason. And he doesn't meet with them. But he does meet with God. And he prays. Throughout the book of Nehemiah is threaded nine different prayers. Here is one. It's very short. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. They're like, Nehemiah, we want you to talk to us. And he's like, I I'm busy talking to God. Well, we want you to meet with us. I'm busy meeting with God. Well, we have some things we want you to stop doing. I can't. Those are things God called me to do. Well, then would you please just come meet with us? I can't. I'm meeting with him and he told me not to meet with you. There are times when you just say no, you walk away, you let it go because you've got more important things to do. You see, if, if Satan can't make you sin, he's going to try to get you distracted. Or you're so busy being worried about what they think that they're, you're overlooking the people and the opportunities God has placed in front of you and the responsibilities that God has assigned to you. So then the story continues. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his 
home, um, you're going to see this is a false prophet. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. Now, that, that sounds on the surface, that's, that's great, right? Let's go to God's house. Let's go to the temple. You'll be safe there. Nehemiah. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Nehemiah says, I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat, those two enemies, had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Let me say this briefly. A prophet is mostly about two things, a revelation and an illumination. Revelation is God tells them something, usually about the future, and about 25% of your Bible when it was written was prophetic in nature. The whole of Nehemiah is basically prophetic. It's preparing the city of Jerusalem and the temple for the coming of the Lord Jesus Remember in Malachi 3.1, the last book of the Old Testament, says that when the Lord comes, he's going to come to his temple. So everything that they're doing is prophetic. It is to prepare for God's future. And the second thing a prophet does is not new revelation, but illumination. That means they take something that was already written in God's word and they apply it to circumstances or the politics or the cultural dynamics, and you're like, oh, now I understand what's going on. So there are prophets and there are false prophets. And the Bible has a lot to say about false prophets. And what do false prophets do? They lie about the future, and it never comes to pass. Or they weaponize the Bible, and they teach it in such a way that it's not trustworthy and true. And here the enemies of God realize that the people of God are more likely to believe the men of God than to believe the enemies of God. So they go get their own spiritual, religious leaders who have some measure of credibility. I mean, they have degrees. They're ordained. They wrote a book. They're out on tour. They're an influencer on social media. They probably wrote a song. And now all of a sudden... The people of God are more likely to believe this false prophet because he says he's still a believer. This is the Judas on the team. Here it's Shemaiah, who's a false prophet, and Noadiah, who's a false female prophet. This happened in their day. It happens in our day. It happens every day. So my encouragement to you is this. Number one, watch out for people who claim to be Christian but are not and number two, beware of platforms that claim to be Christian. Just because it says Christian doesn't mean it is Christian. Just like Jesus had Judas, so do Christian outlets and platforms. And what they will do is that they will weaponize faith to deceive God's people. So you've got to be discerning. 
If I had to put one big word over Nehemiah 6, it would be discernment. What's the truth? What's a lie? What's from God? What's against God? Who's the real believer telling the truth? And who's the false believer getting paid to preach a lie? So just as the people have to have discernment over who to listen to, Nehemiah has to exercise discernment so that he can hear from God and do what is best for the people. This is a test of leadership. Do I do what's glorifying God and good for the people or do I just do what benefits me? And the sin here that they are trying to get Nehemiah to commit is this. Abandon your people. Betray your God. Save yourself. Nehemiah's answer is, I love God and his people more than myself. Next verse. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. It's one of the Hebrew months. In 52 days. It took 141 years for a real attempt at rebuilding. And then in 52 days, the people got it done. And what's amazing is a lot of commentators say, well, that's impossible. It takes a miracle. But it's amazing what God's people can do when they pull together. Don't get distracted. Don't turn on one another. Don't go negative, but stay positive and focused. So they get the city secure, they open the church, they can now move in and be God's family and worship God freely. Everything's about to turn. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. They were very courageous to now very fearful. You know, courage and fear are both contagious. If you lead from fear, all the people who are following you will be in fear. If you lead from courage, all the people following you will have courage. Nehemiah stayed in courage, not fear. The fear went to the enemies. The courage went to God's people. So the enemies, the surrounding nations were in fear. They were afraid because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Here's an amazing thing. God does his work through people. God does his work, but he does it through his people. So they give him glory. So they succeed, but they still have an enemy. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Let me just cut to the chase on this. Tobiah, the enemy, is married to a daughter of a believing family. Next verse, moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So they still have an enemy. Satan is always trying to undermine what God is doing. 
But here's the question. Is the hardship worth the blessing? It is. I need you to know that the Christian life is going to be a bit of hardship before you get to your blessing. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's your hardship. But it's going to end in your blessing. What happens is everyone wonders, look, I'm not just facing hardship. It's like I'm taking a beating for my beliefs and behaviors. Am I in God's will? Probably. That's why you're taking the beating. God, are you doing this? And God would answer, no. I don't beat my people. My enemy does. Just like he beat my son. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The end of the day, their hardship was worth their blessing. They get the city secure. God's people are safe for the first time in 141 years. And then ultimately, this prepares for the coming of Jesus. Their hardship is not just for their blessing, but for our blessing. Remember that God, the Lord Jesus, will come to his temple. Jesus goes through these gates. Jesus passes through these doors. Jesus enters through this wall. Jesus enters to that temple. And ultimately, Jesus took a beating for our sins. That's our blessing. We may have hardship here. In fact, Jesus guarantees it. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. It will lead to a blessing. Here and now. Your blessing begins here. Eternal life does not begin the moment you die. The eternal life begins the moment you meet Jesus. And it changes how you go through this life. So that when you reach eternal life, you are in his presence totally, completely. Do you know him? Do you love him? The invitation from Jesus is that he wants to be in a relationship with you. You're the only one that can stop that. He will not force you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.